Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When the world was first introduced to Dr. John R. Brinkley, it was through a slew of similarly worded headlines heralding the man's genius. Scientists startle scientific world by successful operations. Nearly all of the stories were accompanied by a photograph of the quote-unquote doctor wearing round-framed glasses and holding a beaming blonde-haired little boy. The boy's name was Billy. A fact made all the more hilarious when you realized why the kid's picture was in the paper. He supposedly was conceived after Dr. Brinkley transplanted the testicles of a goat into his father, a man who had come to him complaining of virility issues. Get it? The kid's name was Billy, as in Billy Goat. Get it? (laughs) Not only did Billy's father have trouble fulfilling what he considered his marital duties of late, But he and the missus had previously tried in vain to conceive for nearly two decades. Hearing about the man's problem, Brinkley, who called himself a doctor but was most definitely nothing of the sort, made a joke about how the man needed whatever virility magic goats had, to which the man replied, Hey, that sounds like a great idea. And so began Brinkley's decades-long, multi-million-dollar business endeavor that, when analyzed through today's prism, was little more than a crime spree of quackery that left dozens of people dead in its wake and led to new regulations and laws overseeing the profession of medicine. In a strange twist, too, this case also had lasting ramifications on media— specifically radio broadcasting, as Brinkley used the medium to lure more and more patients to his clinic while also managing to help popularize country music. If it sounds like this case is all over the place, that's because it is. Unlike many of the stories we cover here on Crimes This Centuries, this one can be summed up in a way that sounds more like a punchline than a crime. A fake doctor for years claimed he could cure impotence and infertility by transplanting glands from a goat into human patients. Specifically, those glands tended to be of the testicular variety, and the fake doctor claimed that inserting goat nads into a man's body could cure impotence. The ludicrousy of the tale has earned John Brinkley plenty of snicker-inducing nicknames over the years. The Goat Gland Doctor the goat father of quackery, Appalachia's own mad scientist. Because of all this, there are elements to this case that feel a bit lighter-hearted than, say, ones involving serial killers or intentionally violent crime. And I'm okay with finding the light whenever possible because these cases can be so, so dark at times. Still, I do want to temper things by saying straight away, the man at the center of this killed people. He may not have intended to, 
but his ridiculous and unnecessary surgeries are believed to have caused the deaths of at least 40 otherwise healthy people. Not only that, but he injured countless more. I can't be specific about how many more were injured because a lot of those people were too embarrassed to ever speak publicly about the surgery they had voluntarily elected to have and paid a pretty penny to get. Most of those patients were men who had been having trouble getting erections, which is, of course, as much a problem today as it was back then, though it's certainly a lot easier to treat now than it was in centuries past. Regardless, this has never been the type of ailment that most were comfortable disclosing publicly, period, but certainly not in instances where the insane treatment for the condition didn't even work. The only patients of Brinkley's willing to talk about goat testes implanted in their bodies were the ones who, thanks to what we now know as the placebo effect, believed that their virility was restored thanks to said goat testes, or the ones who were lying in exchange for Brinkley, writing them a check. Now let's talk about this Brinkley fellow. Better yet, let's listen to him talk about himself. I was born on July 8th. 1885, back in the mountains of western North Carolina, and I grew up in those mountains. This is the man born John Romulus Brinkley speaking as an adult in an investigative hearing, during which he emphasized his humble and trauma-filled origin story. When my father died and when he was buried, I stood by his unfilled grave because when he left, All I had was gone. Mama had died on April 23rd, 1891, when I was just a little more than five years of age. And I did not have any brothers or sisters. So when Daddy was gone, everything was gone. And as I stood by his unfilled grave, in my little heart of hearts, I resolved to be a doctor like Daddy was. Brinkley had been named after his doctor daddy, who plied his trade in the country. His homemaker mother was a woman named Candace. Both parents died by the time Brinkley reached age 10, after which he was sent to be raised by an aunt. Becoming a doctor, like his daddy, was, of course, a lofty goal, though not as lofty back then as it is today, for in Brinkley's day, there weren't many requirements or regulations overseeing the medical profession. Still, as a youngster, Brinkley's access to education was spotty at best, so he learned to hustle. When I reached the age of 16 years, I began carrying the mail on the rural pre-delivery route. I would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and wouldn't get back until about 7 o'clock that evening. According to the Kansas Historical Society, he spent some time as a railroad telegrapher before taking courses at Eclectic Medical College in Kansas City, Kansas, but he never graduated. While working for the railroad, Brinkley met his first wife, Sally, and they married in January 1907 in North Carolina. Before long, they were posing as Quaker doctors, touring rural towns with a show to sell their patent medicine. Along the way, Brinkley began to acquire several quote-unquote questionable or outright fraudulent diplomas to fill his walls. One such diploma came from a school called Bennett Medical College in Chicago, an unaccredited school that focused on eclectic medicine, which was rooted in botany. From a documentary produced by KTWU-TV in Topeka, Kansas. 
The practice of eclectic medicine, however, was not certified by most states. Brinkley and his fellow graduates were sent to Arkansas to take their licensing exams. After passing the Arkansas tests, they could then obtain licenses to practice in other states by way of reciprocal licensing agreements. And it was in this way that Brinkley obtained his license to practice medicine in Kansas. Part of the program Brinkley underwent focused on the study of glandular extracts, which would come into play later in his career. Now, Brinkley's wife, Sally, apparently helped him in his grifts, but it doesn't appear that the union was a particularly happy one overall. At one point, Sally tried to leave Brinkley, packing up their then-young daughter while he was at work. Sally filed for divorce and child support, but after only two payments, Brinkley kidnapped the daughter and fled to Canada, officials from which refused to grant Sally's request for an order of extradition because she didn't want to lose her daughter. Sally changed tax and the family was, quote-unquote, reunited back in Chicago. For a while, life trudged on. Ultimately, Sally would give birth to four Brinkley children, though one, a son, died after only a few days. Now, as mentioned, Brinkley had undergone some schooling, but he wasn't a big fan of paying his bills. He had outright stiffed the college in Chicago. By 1911, the family lived in North Carolina, where Brinkley attempted to establish himself as an undergraduate physician, a.k.a. a doctor without an advanced degree. But toward the start of the 20th century, patients were starting to want doctors who, like, knew what they were doing. So he had trouble building a practice without being able to prove he'd had some schooling. The family bounced from town to town throughout the South, all with the same results. After a year of this, Brinkley decided to go back to school, but that goal was made trickier thanks to the pesky issue of his unpaid tuition in Chicago. With the outstanding balance, Bennett Medical College refused to send him his transcripts, rather than, you know, pay his bill. Brinkley instead bought a degree from the Kansas City Eclectic Medical University, a well-known diploma mill. It didn't fool people with actual medical knowledge, but it at least gave him something to hang on the walls to fool the rubes who so badly wanted to believe that Dr. Brinkley could cure what ailed them. He moved the family to New York and then back to Chicago, still trying to establish a successful medical practice. In 1913, Sally gave birth to the couple's final child, a daughter named Naomi, to join sisters Erna and Wanda. She wanted her husband to find a more stable path in life, but he refused to give up what he considered his calling, becoming a doctor. Frustrated, Sally finally left Brinkley for good, taking their three daughters with her. Alone, Brinkley moved south once again and set up a business in Greenville, South Carolina, with a guy using the alias J.W. Burks. You know he was a stand-up fellow because he used an alias. Called Greenville Electromedic Doctors, the two injected different colored water into patients for $25 a pop, which translates to about $770 today. Advertising their treatments as eclectic medicine from Germany, Brinkley and Burks targeted men worried about their manly vigor. A local newspaper referred to their practice as a specialty that treated diseases of a private nature, which, by the way, was kind of genius. Men's virility has long been a sensitive subject, one that guys don't like talking about, 
I know this because a few years ago, I investigated a shady erectile dysfunction clinic, and after the story ran, a publication usually critical of my newspaper wrote this, quote, It tells us how good a reporter Amber Hunt is when men tell her about their penis problems, end quote. I don't boast often, but I've got this one bookmarked. What I learned in that investigation is as true today as it was when Brinkley was around, which is that it's a lot easier to scam people when they're going to be too embarrassed to talk about what happened. It ensures that the scam goes undetected, at least in the short term, until a few exceptionally brave individuals step forward to tell their stories. Anyway, despite Brinkley and his partner making serious money with their colored water nonsense treatments, they weren't keen on paying their bills. According to the Newberry Weekly Herald from August 1913, the proprietors of, quote, Greenville Electromedic Doctors, both young men, left town Sunday and warrants had been sworn out charging them with passing worthless checks, end quote. The Greenville sheriff circulated a letter offering a reward of $25 for their capture. Amongst Brinkley's charges in Greenville were 15 counts of bogus checks and one count of forgery. Their secretary was the one who found the office emptied, save for a letter of recommendation left on her desk to be used in a search for a new position. Brinkley and Burks fled to Memphis, Tennessee, where Brinkley married Minerva Minnie Jones after a four-day courtship. Slight problem with that, though. He was technically still married to Sally. During Minnie and Brinkley's whirlwind honeymoon, which apparently took them to Kansas City, Denver, Pocatello, and Knoxville, the law caught up with Brinkley. In Knoxville, he was arrested and extradited back to Greenville. He and his partner, the Burks fellow, settled with their victims to stay out of jail using money from Minnie's father. With that unpleasantness behind him, Brinkley left Burks and took Minnie to settle in Jidsonia, Arkansas, where he finally saw some profit when he took over the practice of a doctor who was moving out of the state. Amazingly, he actually paid off his balance to Bennett Medical University, which in turn allowed him to re-enroll at Eclectic Medical University and get an advanced degree. While he was taking classes, he took a job as a medic at a meatpacking plant, studying animal physiology and patching minor wounds of the workers. It was there where he had his eureka moment, as his second wife, Minnie, explains here. Dr. Brinkley was, uh, for a time, surgeon for Swift and Company in Kansas City. And uh, he found out that the goat was the only, the healthiest animal. The Toggenberg, not the billy goat, you know. Not an Angora. Manger. Not an Angora. Had to smell to high heaven. <laughs> <laughs> no, these little Toggenbergs, and we used them to, uh, two months old. And uh, they were very small. There wasn't too much of it, you know. The thinking apparently went like this. Goats are healthy animals and have long been considered symbols of virility. References to this can be found all over the place, inside of various religions and mythology. You know, satyrs, right? The Roman version started with mostly goat attributes for the animal portion of the creature. There's also a reason that Thor, the Norse god of thunder, strength, and virility, rides a chariot pulled by goats. By the time Brinkley graduated in May 1915 with a degree that allowed him to practice actual medicine in eight states, his plan to infuse human males with goat virility was well-formed. 
Before he went too far down that path, however, he had some personal matters to attend to. Second wife Minnie learned of Brinkley's bigamy in Memphis when Sally showed up to say, hey, your husband's actually still married to me. Minnie wasn't a fan. She insisted Brinkley file for divorce, which he did in December of 1915. The divorce was finalized in February 1916, four days after which Minnie and John were married again in Missouri, even though technically they should have had to wait six months. But, you know, rules apparently didn't apply to them. Anyway, John and Minnie would remain married for the rest of their eventful lives. After a two-month stint in the Army during World War I, John and his newly legal and now sole wife found ways to root their practice in a number of ways. For starters, John had learned from his past mistakes that he would have to win over the locals, his clients, which he did by making house calls to anyone who came down with the deadly flu. He also made a point to pay staffers good wages, so he had a reputation as a good employer as well as a caring doctor. Milford had 16 cases of influenza as of October 23, 1918, and there were already ads in the Moran Herald for citizens to get their, quote, influenza protection from a well-selected line of preventatives at Brinkley's, end quote. The people loved Brinkley. This is Mark Gruber with America's Untold Stories. They wanted what Brinkley offered, you know, and Brinkley cured them. I think it was... Um, During the height of the influenza, Brinkley went from house to house to house, saving everybody, dealing with everyone, when nobody, everyone was petrified of catching it. Even though Brinkley was still hawking questionable treatments, the line of preventatives available at Brinkley-affiliated pharmacies, his attentiveness and bedside manner during the pandemic endeared him to many, providing him job security that he used to continue fine-tuning the procedure that would ultimately become his legacy, the goat testicle operation. The first mention of Dr. John Brinkley's miracle cure appeared in Kansas newspapers in December 1919 in a letter to the editor. The author claimed to be H.R. Mosnett from Kansas City, who wrote to the Fort Scott Daily Tribune and Fort Scott Daily Monitor to spread the word about Dr. Brinkley's, quote, miracle operation, end quote. The article mentions the letter was typed on letterhead for Mosnat's livestock business, explaining the connection between Mosnat and Brinkley. He had just ordered a nanny goat shipped to Brinkley's hospital to be used for the wonderful surgical work Dr. Brinkley is doing there. Mosnat described how Brinkley performed a gland transplantation operation in January 1918 on a man roughly 46 years old. The patient, and apparently his wife, had not been able to have a child for 16 years. Yet, according to the letter, within a year of the operation, the couple had a happy and healthy and perfectly normal in every way baby boy. That's the boy named Billy. Ha ha. Soon after, those headlines I read earlier made newspapers nationwide, the ones accompanied by a photo of Brinkley proudly holding toe-headed Billy. You might be wondering how this operation worked exactly. Thanks to Gruber and Eric Hunley at America's Untold Stories, I don't have to be the one to spell it out, in part because it's complicated, and I don't think anyone's ever made really clear sense of it. Now, let me just explain this, because it might be a little confusing to people. 
he didn't take the balls and put them in there and take the other balls out because i said i got to figure out how this worked so finally i found a journal that said exactly how it worked he simply cut a little piece of gland of the goat testicles and placed it into the human scrotum i don't know what he did with the human to human testicles but apparently it either had a placebo effect or it really worked eric i don't well, really they, know they did actually insert the full testicles because they they would show that they had more than one and there was other doctors who like put in their own testicles they had like three in their stomach it was just weird so yeah goat balls were either jammed into men's scrotums alongside their natural balls or apparently sometimes just sewn into random spots somewhere else on the body Despite Minnie and John Brinkley for years insisting that this was a complex surgery requiring the testicles to be carefully attached via veins and such, it was not. Brinkley described his version of the procedure in The Goat Gland Transplantation, a book he commissioned in 1921. He described incisions, tying off tubes, and reconnecting them to goat glands. The specifics of each operation depended on the patient as, quote, no two cases are exactly alike, end quote. However, the operation was nowhere near that involved. According to National Geographic, after making an incision, Brinkley inserted the testicles of a six-week-old goat just under the layers of skin. As the goat was so young, the testicle was the size of a macadamia nut, and he just set it under the skin. There was no connecting it to veins or tubes. If you were the patient, you could feel something under your skin, and the placebo effect worked its magic. One patient, an 81-year-old man, wrote Brinkley after his operation, saying that he felt, quote, like a boy of 18. The goat glands have certainly done the work for me, end quote. In reality, when the goat bits were placed into the patients, they had no positive effect and were generally broken down by the patient's body. Now, even if Brinkley's theory about transferring goat virility into men had been sound, which it wasn't, but even if it had been, his procedure never even came close to testing out that theory because all he did was shove random animal parts into a human body. And he got paid like $750 an operation, which is on par with fifteen grand in today's money. To be clear, though, some men did rave about the procedure, claiming it did far more than simply help them get their groove back. One of the most effusive patients was Dr. J.J. Tobias, who'd been the chancellor of the now-defunct Chicago Law School. In a series of August 1920 news stories, Tobias told reporters that he felt 25 years younger after Brinkley inserted a pair of goat testicles in him in a painless operation that took only about 10 minutes. Tobias said, quote, I had been ill with the flu, felt old and played out before the operation. I couldn't do justice to my work. I had lost ambition. A week after the operation, I was able to leave the hospital I wasn't the same man. I felt full of energy, wanted to be up and around. I was rejuvenated. I came back to Chicago and plunged into my work with a vigor that astonished all who came in contact with me. End quote. This testimonial got Brinkley waves of new patients, which in turn led to more victims. 
At first, it might seem that Dr. John Brinkley maybe did more good than harm by more or less tricking insecure men and a few women into believing they were more virile or fertile, which in turn led to them feeling as such, which in turn apparently led to actual manifestations of those feelings in their bodies. But the bottom line was that they were allowing a person with questionable medical training to operate on them, and that's inherently risky. In the 1930s, Brinkley was sued for wrongful death more than a dozen times, while dozens more patients suffered from infections. Between the major advertising push for patients and the numerous wrongful death complaints, it was only a matter of time before he got on the radar of the American Medical Association. They sent an agent to Brinkley's clinic undercover to investigate. This super-secret undercover agent arrived in the Milford Clinic to find a female patient struggling to walk. The agent discovered the woman had been given goat ovaries for, wait for it, a tumor on her spinal cord. From that moment on, the AMA was watching Brinkley and would eventually cause his downfall. But before that happened, Brinkley was able to operate on thousands of patients, in part because newspapers of the day were complicit in spreading bogus news about his supposedly successful surgeries. For example, in 1922, news of this Kansas doctor and his wacky surgery reached California. Harry Chandler, the owner of the Los Angeles Times, challenged Brinkley to come to the coast and perform the surgery on one of his editors— not Chandler himself, but one of his employees. California did not recognize Brinkley's medical license, but Chandler was able to get him a 30-day permit. Why was this a thing? I have no idea. Brinkley performed the surgery, and it was judged a success. Who did that judging? Based on what criteria? I can't tell you. But in the surgery's aftermath, Brinkley got tons of press in the LA Times, which led to new customers, including Hollywood stars. With all the potential, Brinkley started to make plans to relocate his clinic. But remember that pesky AMA? Yet Morris Fishbean, the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association and an exposer of medical quacks, unproven medical devices, and unregulated medical practices, targeted Brinkley. When Brinkley applied for his license in California, Fishbean wrote to the California Medical Board to detail all of the lies and discrepancies in Brinkley's resume. While disappointed, Brinkley returned to Kansas and turned his attention to expanding his Milford Clinic instead. In addition to the publicity, Chandler also introduced Brinkley into his other legacy, radio. While in L.A., Brinkley toured KHJAM, a radio station owned by Chandler, and recognized the advertising power of radio, though the medium was still new enough that advertising on it was considered tacky. After returning to Kansas, Brinkley raised enough money to build KFKB, Kansas First, Kansas Best, by 1923. The first tower used a one-kilowatt transmitter, For some context, modern radio stations are roughly 50,000 kilowatts, but this was a big deal for Milford and for Kansas. Further proof of Brinkley's popularity in Kansas came less than a year later when a San Francisco grand jury issued indictments for doctors involved in fake medical degrees. Brinkley was one of them. 
Law enforcement from California supposedly arrived in Kansas to arrest Brinkley, but the governor refused to extradite him. Why? Because Brinkley made Kansas too much money. And where did Brinkley go to celebrate his victory over California, the AMA, and Morris Fishbean? His radio station, of course. As it was the advent of the radio age, there wasn't a lot of content to fill the time other than Brinkley himself. He spoke for hours every single day, primarily promoting his goat gland procedures and treatments. To drum up business, he shamed people's, mostly men's, sexual dysfunction and appealed to their egos, promising a path to sexual satisfaction. Before too long, Brinkley claimed his clinic could help male prostate problems and also started a segment called Medical Question Box, where he read fans' medical complaints or questions on the air. Of course, every recommendation for treatment was a proprietary blend only available at Brinkley-affiliated pharmacies. Here's an example. If I wrote into his radio show complaining of frequent headaches, Brinkley might recommend to me Elixir Number 7. Then I could go to any Brinkley-affiliated pharmacy and ask the pharmacist for Brinkley's Number 7. To no one's surprise, these elixirs were extremely overpriced, with a portion of the profits sent back to Brinkley. Author Pope Brock, who wrote a book about this case called Charlatan, estimated that this scheme generated about $800, or $14,000 in today's money, per week. That's more than $12.7 million per year in today's money. Brinkley was rich beyond his wildest dreams and took great pains to keep his patients and the city of Greenville on his side. He paid for a new sewage system and new sidewalks for Milford. He even installed electricity, a huge step forward for a small Kansas town. He also built a brand new post office and apartments for his patients and employees. Plus, he sponsored a town baseball team called, I kid you not, the Brinkley Goats. Hanley and Gruber talking on America's untold stories again. Everywhere he, built, he went, he, he built, built roads, everything. He built a street, put in the yeah. whole sewage system, put in a hospital, put in a church, put in a school. Is it any wonder they loved him? He was a god. Well, and you see, that's where it's, I think his, his story is so interesting because depending on where you are in the spectrum, he's pretty complex, right? Because right. he did give back to his community. More than anyone. And I could see where anyone in the town would say, hey, I love this guy. Look, he brought roads. He did this. He did this. He did. He's been nothing but good to us. Meanwhile, Brinkley also introduced his radio listeners to stuff they'd never heard before. After all, even he couldn't talk 24-7. So he played lots of things he found interesting when he wasn't on the air. This included military bands, random storytelling, French lessons, Zodiac predictions, and music that many in Kansas might consider exotic, like Hawaiian. Brock also lists American roots music, which included gospel and early country. More on that later. Still not satisfied with what he had, Brinkley traveled to Europe in 1925, seeking even more fake, I mean honorary, degrees. Almost all medical institutions slammed the door in his face, but the university in Pavia, Italy was like, sure, here you go. But the AMA and Fishbean heard about this and pressured the Italian government to revoke Brinkley's degree. 
Fishbein and his mentor, Max Thorek, the founder of the International College of Surgeons, convinced none other than Benito Mussolini to rescind the degree, though Brinkley continued to claim it until he died more than 15 years later. Fishbein was only getting started in his campaign to bring down Brinkley and his clinic after patients picked up their proprietary elixirs and inevitably got sick or sicker. They went to other doctors only to tell them about these miracle cures. Several times, Brinkley would misuse the medications of legit pharmaceutical companies, which would then ask Fishbean to intervene in an effort to avoid being affiliated with a quack. Brock's book describes the AMA's response, stating that they had no real power over Brinkley except to inform the public about his fraud. This was assisted by the Kansas City Star, which ran a series of unfavorable reports about Brinkley and just so happened to own a competing radio station. By 1930, the Kansas Medical Board decided enough evidence had amassed to hold a hearing on whether to revoke Brinkley's medical license. The most damning evidence was the 42 death certificates he had signed, many of whom were not sick when they arrived at his clinic for treatment. And those were the 42 deaths the state knew about. That was enough to revoke his license, stating that Brinkley had, quote, performed an organized charlatanism quite beyond the invention of the humble mountebank, end quote. Six months later, his radio station lost its license, too. The Federal Radio Commission issued a finding that most of the station's offerings were advertising, obscene materials, and that his cornerstone segment, Medical Question Box, was contrary to the public interest. Brinkley's reaction to losing his livelihood? Why, entering politics, of course. He launched a campaign to become the governor of Kansas, a position that would allow him to appoint people he felt confident would restore his licenses. Launching his campaign only three days after the medical board revoked his license, he was able to use his station to curry votes. Segments featuring German and Swedish speakers were put on the schedule to appeal to immigrants. He spoke vaguely about tent poles of elections, education, taxes, care for the elderly, and public spending. As Brinkley was a write-in candidate, the Kansas Attorney General announced, three days before the election, that the only way votes would be considered valid is if voters wrote J.R. Brinkley. Any votes where voters wrote Dr. John Brinkley, John Brinkley, J. Brinkley, etc., would not be counted. The Des Moines Register estimated that as many as 50,000 votes were disqualified because of this rule, which was enough to keep Brinkley from the governor's mansion. So now Brinkley had lost his medical license, his radio station, and his bid for governor. Whatever would he do? Well, he decided to move to Del Rio, Texas, close to the Mexican border. Why, you might ask. Well, that's because Mexico was annoyed at the United States for dividing the radio frequencies of North America without considering their neighbors to the south. So when Brinkley asked for a 50,000-watt radio license, the strength of his station today, Mexico was more than happy to issue it. He began construction of XER in Via Acuna, now called Ciudad Acuna, just over the bridge from Del Rio. Stations situated on the border like this were called border blasters and used to target another country. 
Fishbean implored the State Department to find a way to stop this new station. The Mexican government temporarily halted construction, but in October 1931, XCR at 8.40 on the AM dial made its first broadcast. Brinkley used XCR to campaign in his 1932 and 1934 gubernatorial elections. He lost in all contests, but easily turned to hawking products of questionable nature. According to the AV Club, products advertised on XCR included crazy water crystals and autographed photos of Jesus. In 1932, the Mexican government allowed Brinkley to increase the wattage to 150,000, allowing voters in Kansas to hear the station all the way from Mexico. Before the election, he was able to increase the wattage once again to 1 million watts, making it the most powerful radio station on Earth. According to Brock, the author, people close to the radio towers reported that the incredibly strong signal made car headlights turn on, made bed springs hum. People heard Brinkley's broadcast while they were talking on the phone. Local ranchers claimed they didn't need a radio because they could hear the broadcast through their metal fences and or their metal dental appliances. On a clear night, Brinkley's voice could be picked up as far away as Canada or South America. With so many in his sphere of influence, Fishbean and the United States government doubled their efforts to bring down Brinkley. The Federal Radio Commission banned mind readers, fortune tellers, and mystics from the radio in 1932, causing many of them to follow Brinkley south of the border. Next, Congress passed a law known as the Brinkley Act. He was still living primarily in Milford and calling into his station XCR. The Brinkley Act outlawed the practice of using the telephone to call into a border blaster. So he pivoted to pre-recorded segments until he was able to close shop in Milford and move permanently to Del Rio. Finally, in 1934, Mexico succumbed to pressure from the U.S. State Department to close Brinkley down. They brought in the Mexican army to shutter the XCR station for good. From 1934 to 1938, Brinkley continued to operate on many, many patients, mostly offering useless tinctures and modified vasectomies at that point, which still allowed him to amass a fortune. He and Minnie built a mansion on 16 acres with a dozen Cadillacs, a greenhouse, a swimming pool with a 10-foot diving tower, and a garden with 8,000 bushes and exotic animals. Finally, in 1938, another doctor came to town and cut deeply into Brinkley's profits. Things unraveled quickly after this as Morris Fishbean returned, writing a series of articles called Modern Medical Charlatans. Published in a medical journal, Fishbean went through Brinkley's entire career, exposing all of his questionable credentials. According to the case of Brinkley versus Fishbean, Proceedings of a Libel Suit, Based on an article published in Hygieia, Brinkley sued Fishbean for $250,000, the equivalent of $5.4 million today. A Texas jury found for Fishbean, reiterating that Brinkley was, in fact, a charlatan and a quack. Additional lawsuits were filed, totaling in the millions, and the IRS opened an investigation on Brinkley for tax fraud. The combination of these caused him to declare bankruptcy in 1941. 
As his assets were being cataloged and sold, yet another investigation of him was started, this time by the U.S. Post Office for mail fraud. To complete his downfall, Brinkley's health declined sharply. He had three heart attacks and had one of his legs amputated because of poor circulation, all within a calendar year. And on May 26, 1942, six months into the Second World War, John R. Brinkley died of heart failure in San Antonio without a cent to his name. To quote Columbo, just one more thing. The music that Brinkley played on his stations, folk music found in rural Kansas, played on KFKB from 1925 until 1931, on XER from 1932 to 1933, and XERA until 1935. Names that would become world-renowned listened to these stations while they were young and or had their early careers boosted by having music played on Brinkley stations. Country music acts such as the Carter family, Jimmy Rogers, and Gene Autry were all influenced by Brinkley stations. As absolutely nuts as it sounds, a quack that was responsible for dozens of deaths was also responsible for popularizing early country music. research this story, I had the help from Jennifer Erdman, assistant professor and chair of the history slash political science department at Notre Dame of Maryland University, who read Pope Rock's book, Charlatan, America's Most Dangerous Huckster, The Man Who Pursued Him, and The Age of Flim Flam. I also watched several documentaries and read contemporary news coverage, as well as some retrospective pieces. It's worth noting that as recently as last year, PubMed ran a piece titled John R. Brinkley, a quintessential American quack. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.